Well, good morning. I, I sensed that when Johnny asked me to do this, he was using his pastoral sense and was concerned that I was not going to come to church on New Year's Day. And it's true, when I told my wife I was doing this, she says, really, you're, you're going to go to church on New Year's Day? <laughs> to which I said, well, the bowl games aren't until Monday, so um, here we are. It is not just New Year's Day, though. It is, it is the eighth day since we celebrated Christmas together um, here in our Christmas Eve service. And in our story this morning, it is the eighth day from Christmas. The boy Jesus has been presented at the temple in accordance with the law, and his parents, because they are poor, offered up two turtle doves. Surely it wasn't pigeons. Two turtle doves because they were poor. In Luke's account, all of this could be labeled prologue, for it is the beginning of his story. But really, this is part of a much larger story, and it is, it is the supreme moment of that story, which God has been weaving and telling for millennia. All of the Old Testament has been building to this moment, which Paul tells us has come at the fullness of time. That point where the word has become flesh and he has made his dwelling among us. And here it is that we meet Simeon. We know very little about Simeon. We presume he is old, though that is not explicit in the text. It does seem clear, however, that his life is at an end. Simeon is righteous and devout. The text tells us he is one of that hidden remnant of people that God seems to keep from him for himself throughout the ages. Always there, almost always below the surface. But every now and then, one of them will stick his or her head up in the story. But only for a moment. And in this moment, it is Simeon. Simeon is waiting. He has been waiting probably all his life. And the text tells us he is waiting for three things. The consolation of Israel. The salvation that is being prepared for all peoples. And the Lord's Christ. Israel is indeed in need of consolation. And its need is deep. In Genesis 12, God ordained the nation in a covenant with Abraham. He said that they would be a great nation. That they would be a blessing. That all nations on the earth would be blessed through them. They would, be a, they would be the original great city on a hill, a shining light, a chosen people, a blessing to all the nations around them. But it did not ever seem to turn out that way. Their history is marked by a yearning to be far more like the nations around them than the kingdom they were there to represent. The kings they demanded did evil. They turned to foreign gods and idols. And finally, the Almighty gave them over to the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and the Persians. As the prophet stopped speaking and the Old Testament canon closed, Israel was decimated. The glory had departed and all Israel had left was its law, the covenants that seemed at an end, and an obscure set of promises that promised that the Lord's Christ would one day come to set all things right. By Simeon's time, 700 years had passed since that moment. Things had not improved. Tiny Israel set spread among multiple Roman provinces. Rather than being a great nation and a blessing to the nations of the earth, Israel was a conquered people, ruled over by an insidious empire that not only worshipped foreign gods, but, defi- but deified themselves and demanded that their subjects worship them also. Roman tax collectors, under the unassailable color of imperial authority, terrorized the people 
shamelessly taking from the poor what they needed to survive. The nation itself was in chaos, with rebel factions like the Zealots continually trying and failing to overturn Roman rule. A Roman garrison sat ever watching in a fortress that they had constructed next to the temple of God. And the spiritual guides of the nation, those charged with leading the people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were consumed with a poisoned self-righteousness. And rather than leading the suffering nation toward a spiritual vibrancy in this difficult time, they led them toward further decay. And without Israel as the shining light and the blessing, the other peoples of the earth were in far worse shape. Desperates for salvation. The curse that had gone out from the garden was consuming them. Greed, corruption, idolatry, and violence plagued the empire. Lawlessness reigned beyond her borders. And there was no sign of the Lord's Christ. So 700 years after the last promise was made, Simeon still waited. All his life he had waited. Now he was about to die. He waited for a blessing not yet realized, for the breaking of a curse not yet dealt with, and for the Lord's Christ who was notably absent. Yet Simeon clinged to the promises he knew by heart. Make no mistake, Simeon had little reason to believe these promises. 700 years is a lot of silence. It is three times the life of this nation. Simeon had never met a prophet. Simeon had never met anyone who had ever met anyone who had ever met a prophet. (laughs) Simeon had never seen a miracle. Those had not happened since the time of Elisha. All Simeon had had was a set of somewhat obscure promises passed through hundreds of years of oral tradition, and yet he hoped in them. He clung tightly to them. For the last eight years, as Johnny mentioned, I, I have worked for an organization called International Justice Mission. We have 14 field offices throughout the world, and our mission is to protect poor people from violence. We do this by directly intervening alongside local local law enforcement to rescue and restore victims of violent injustice and to ensure that their oppressors are held accountable for their crimes. We also work to transform broken public justice systems to ensure that they protect the poor. As you can probably imagine, I meet some extraordinary people in this work. And one such person I will call Elizabeth. Possibly like Simeon, Elizabeth grew up in a devout Christian family. By the 10th grade, she knew that she wanted to go to Bible school. Like any Christian 10th grader who has yet to freely experience the realities of this world, no offense 10th graders, she believed in the promises of scripture, that she would have an abundant life in Christ, that she would have eternal salvation, that one day every tear would be wiped from her eyes, that Jesus would never leave her nor forsake her. But Elizabeth's family was poor. In order to go to Bible school, she would need to find some money. And so when a kind woman came to her village offering to take her for a job in the city, Elizabeth rejoiced at this great opportunity to earn money for school. Yet as so often happens in Elizabeth's country, this kind lady was not that at all. 
She was a trafficker in persons. And overnight, Elizabeth's joy turned to terror as she realized that she had been taken from her family and sold into slavery. Her captors locked her in a building with other young women and girls so that they could exploit her for profit. Elizabeth stood fast, though. She refused to cooperate. She refused to submit to their cruelty. She, she, she refused to do what they demanded. And as Americans, we're like, good girl. But as Ecclesiastes instructs, her oppressors had power. And there was no one to comfort her. They broke her resilient fighting spirit through the simple expedient of not allowing her food. After three months, she was theirs to do as they wished. Elizabeth, still a devout Christian, tried to rally her fellow victims, asking them to pray with her. But rather than join her, they mocked her, saying, Your God cannot hear you in here. Elizabeth wanted to die. But alone, she prayed for rescue. She prayed that her God would hear her prayer. She prayed and she hoped against hope that he would bring her freedom. And in 2003, an IJM investigator found her. With her help, he was able to gather all the necessary evidence to mobilize law enforcement to bring her and her fellow victims rescue. When he was clearing the building, looking for additional evidence, he came to the place where she was made to suffer. And there, scrawled on the dirty wall, were the carefully penned words of Psalm 27, 1 to 3. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then will I be confident. Throughout her enslavement, throughout the horrors she endured, Throughout her starvation, throughout the admonishments that her God could not hear her, Elizabeth clinged to those promises she had been taught, even though she no longer had any reason to believe them. Was God with her? Was he there with her like he said he would be? Well, of course, it is easy for me to stand here and say that he was and then go out to lunch. But what is more powerful is that she believed that he was. I have another friend who has known a different kind of suffering. He is a man my age who has been successful at every single thing to which he has laid his hand. Successful in school, successful in career, successful in family. He has a beautiful and witty wife, four wonderful children. He is good-looking, athletic, and everyone loves him. The first time he had lymphoma, the doctors treated it aggressively. After an 18-month ordeal, he and his wife picked up the pieces and moved on. When it came back, 
They treated it aggressively again, and it went into remission again. But this time, the doctors recommended an experimental follow-on treatment to be certain that all the cancer was gone. The doctors themselves described this treatment as draconian. And it involved the killing of every single stem cell in his body and then a stem cell transplant. After this painful treatment, the doctors told him, it will not, it will not come back. But it did. This time it came when his wife was pregnant with their fourth child. They treated it aggressively again and again. It has gone into remission. This friend lives in another country, and a few months ago I got together with him and another handful of friends. And as we were talking, someone asked him what, if anything, he had learned about God throughout this ordeal. He paused, and he said, oh yes, I have learned something. He looked each of us in the eye, and he said this. I came to realize that God does not promise us much in this life. He does not promise us safety. He does not promise us health or strength. He does not promise that we will live long or even beyond today. He does not promise to protect us from pain, hardship, poverty, or suffering. He does not promise us friends. He does not promise us family or to keep our family safe. He does not promise us wealth or success. He does not promise that we get to do that which we dream of doing. Really, he just promises that he will never leave us. And in the end, I was left with just that. For Simeon, Elizabeth, for my friend with lymphoma, in their suffering, they clinged to God's promises. Even when all around them screamed at them that they should not. They hoped in these things without any reasonable explanation, uh, reasonable expectation that anything would get better this side of death. And not much of an expectation that it would even get better on the other side of death. Simeon saw only the first inkling of the Lord's coming. Back in 2003, trafficking victims like Elizabeth were pretty much never rescued. When you get lymphoma for the third time in your mid-30s after the doctors told you you would not, there is not much reason to hope. But they did cling to the promises. They hoped in them. And for some reason, they had a measure of assurance in these things hoped for. The scripture calls this odd and unexplainable assurance faith. And it aptly calls faith a gift, for it cannot all come from ourselves. And it also tells us that God, for some reason, is greatly pleased by it. And these three, these three not only cling to the promise, though, that God would stay with them. They clinged to and hoped in an even greater promise. And a much more odd promise. The promise that someday, somehow, the Lord's Christ would set even these things right. At the end of Tolkien's great story, the ring is destroyed, Mordor has fallen, evil is finished, and we the readers are left with this one question, what does it mean? 
And to answer this, Tolkien turns to the true hero of his story, the hobbit, Samwise Gamgee. And Sam addresses the, the wizard Gandalf, and Sam says, is all that is sad going to come untrue? Is all that is sad going to come untrue? Is the Lord's Christ really going to set things right? Is he really going to heal the suffering of his chosen people, Israel? Is he really going to end the curse and heal all the destruction it has wreaked as far as it is found? Is he really going to take Elizabeth's great sorrow and make it untrue? How would he do that? I have no idea. But he says that he will. At the end of God's great story, the curse is destroyed. Satan has fallen. Evil is finished. God's children are gathered to him. And it is said, behold, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. Let's pray. Jesus we don't, we don't want to seek out suffering because that's just weird. But we know that there's plenty of suffering to go around and suffering will visit us. And we don't actually know how we would cling to these promises that you have made that seem so far off in these times. But we pray for the faith and we pray for the hope um, that we can cling to those promises and they will carry us through. <coughs> And so, Jesus, we thank you for Elizabeth, and we thank you for Simeon, and we thank you um, for, for all those we have seen who suffer but who cling to those promises. And we ask that you would make us such men and women. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you, and Happy New Year. Mm-hmm.